Heavenly Father, we know that apart from you and apart from the great work of Christ upon the cross, that life indeed would be vanity, all vanity, and only chasing after the wind. We recognize the struggles and the observations of Coalette for all mankind, and yet they do not tell the full story. We know, Lord, that you created us in the beginning, and you said with your own mouth that it is very good. We know, Lord, that before the fall and sin entered into your good creation, all creation glorified your name. And yet we see now injustice, we see iniquity, we see self-indulgence, we see a lack of wisdom, we see our own mortality, Lord, and there's no certainty of life after death apart from Christ. And many of us labor day after day, and we question whether or not there is any fruitfulness in our labor. And so we come to you, many of us, this morning, just like Coalette, making observations, having questions without answers. I pray this morning, Lord, you would answer these questions, that you would help us to see clearly that the work that you've called us to do, the life that you've promised us in Christ is not in vain. We desire to worship you this morning as a church. We desire your churches here in the South Bay to magnify your name in the faithful proclamation of the gospel of grace. We desire all believers in this country this day to recognize that you are God. We desire the gospel to go out beyond the borders of this country to every tribe, to every nation, and every tongue that Christ might be glorified today and forever. And so be gracious with us. Be gracious with your church this morning. Bless us with the presence of your Holy Spirit that we might hear your word and be forever changed by it. Transform us, I pray, into the image of your most holy Son. I ask these things in his glorious name. Amen. Good morning. I have at the top of my notes, slow down. I have it on every page. I had a chance to go back and, and look at some of the, uh, we're doing YouTube now, so that's even worse to see yourself preach. But I was listening and thinking, why so fast? What hurry are you in? And I know what it is. There's a sense of pressure to get it done in this magical 45-minute mark that has been placed upon the church today. I don't know where that came from, but I'm tired of it. So I'm going to try to just slow down so I may go a little bit longer. I pray that you do not find that burdensome, but I know that my talking too fast is burdensome. So pray that I'll slow down and pray that you'll be patient with my talking more slowly. Okay? All right. If you do not have your Bibles open, please do so. We are in Ecclesiastes. We've spent the last five weeks in Ecclesiastes. And if you've been following along with us, we've been, we've been walking with the sage Coalette. And Coalette is looking for the eternal. He wants to find that thing that is lasting, real purpose, eternal joy. He's looked at it in wisdom. He's looked at it in self-indulgence. He looked at it in his work. He even looked at it in some of the simple pleasures in life. And after each experiment and observation, he declares, vanity, vanity, it's all vanity, chasing after the wind, nothing eternal, nothing last, nothing to be found forever. And as I contemplated his search, I was thinking this is not a failure so much in the method 
of his pursuit as it is the foundation of his pursuit. Colette is a theist. In other words, his worldview embraces the idea that there is a God, but it's not the God of the Bible. And so what we find here is a life shaped by and conclusions shaped by not the Word of God, but his thoughts about God. Colette believed in God. There's no question. He writes so much about it in this book. So we know that he was a theist. But he did not believe in the God of the Bible. And he did not rely upon the Word of God to shape his understanding of God, man, human history, our purpose, and or his destiny. He does or did what many do today. He takes a little bit of Bible. He takes a little bit of observation, a little life experience, and he puts it all together to form absolute truth. And what Colette does here is he ascends the throne. He's asking questions. He's definitely confused, but he draws some really hard conclusions, conclusions that we do not see align themselves with the Bible itself. And I believe, my friends, this is the same type of general theism that we see prevalent in the culture today, and I would argue prevalent in the church today. Same idea. We take a little Bible, a little experience, some observations from the evening news, we put it all together, and we form a worldview that is not based upon the Word of God. And so what happens? We struggle with injustice. We struggle with our own mortality. We struggle with the uncertainty of life after death, and we go to work day after day, and we say, why am I doing it? What fruit comes from this? And so I think we have much to learn here from Coalette because there's much of Coalette's thinking and worldview in the church today. I praise God that Christianity offers us a better view, a better understanding than general theism. And so I want to do two things this morning. I want to look at the failure of theism, and I'll explain that to you in a minute. And I want to look at the merits of Christianity. And by God's grace, we can look at some of the struggles that Coalette went through and have answers, not answers made up, but answers that come directly from God's revealed word. Amen? All right, so let's do that. Let's first look at the failure of theism. What is theism? Theism is a belief in God. If you are a Christian, then you are a theist, but not all theists are Christians. Theism is a belief that there is a higher being, a transcendent being of some kind. A theist is distinguished from an atheist who believes there is no God, or an agnostic who says, I have no idea if there's a God or not. Colette is a theist. We would not argue that he's a Christian. We wouldn't even argue that he has a biblical understanding from a Jewish perspective. But he does believe that there is a God. And with his theism, he has four observations and draws some very difficult conclusions about origin, purpose, and ultimate destiny. He struggles with iniquity or injustice. He struggles with his own mortality he struggles with the uncertainty of life after death, and he struggles with futility. He struggles with his own labor. And with each one, he brings us to this place where we will identify with this fleshly response, even though we won't agree with it biblically. The first thing he contends with is all the injustice, all the iniquity he sees in the world. Look at verse 16 in chapter 3 with me. Colette says, Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice even there was wickedness, 
and in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. And so even though this judgment of God was not a driving force in Colette's life, as we saw last week, he believed there was a time for everything, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to love, a time to hate, and then he comes and says, and a time when God will judge the righteous and the wicked. So he has this essential truth in his theology, and he makes this observation. He says, I look upon the world. I look upon the places where there's supposed to be righteousness, the courts of law, but instead of righteousness, there's wickedness. Those who are innocent are being found guilty, and many of those who are guilty are being found innocent. And he says, this is not right. I don't believe you have to be a Christian to make that observation. If you are old enough, then many of you remember the, when the jury returned from the O.J. Simpson trial, and they found a man who had committed murder on his ex-wife and a friend to be not guilty. And I think most of the nation was aghast by it. You, you can be a casual observer and see on the nightly news the terrorism that continues to plague the world, and you say, that's not right. You can be a casual observer and see the political corruption that permeates the American culture. You can see the racism that is everywhere. And if you believe there is a God, as Colette did, and you believe that God is just, as Colette did, then you must also conclude that that God will someday judge in some way, in some capacity. He must. And so we agree with Colette on this. But I want you to notice something. Colette finds no peace in this observation. He finds no peace that this God will one day judge the wicked and the righteous. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4 with me. Look at verse 1. Colette says, Again, I saw the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. So again, he, he makes this observation. He, he accurately discern, discerns what's taking place in the world. And he sees the haves and the have-nots. And those that have using their power to oppress those that do not have. Today, he would likely look upon the women and children in Aleppo. And he would cry out for mercy. He would look upon our Christian brothers and sisters in Iran right now and cry out for mercy. He would look upon the Dalits in India and say, where is the justice? Where is the mercy? Where is the equity? And then he says, I see no one coming to their aid. I see no one fighting for their cause. Look at verse 2. He says, I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. Better than both is he who has not yet been born and has not yet seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. And so... Colette looks upon the world and he says, I see so much injustice and so much wickedness that you're better off being dead. And he says, nay, you're better off never being born than to enter into this world and suffer the oppression and the injustice that mankind inflicts upon one another. And you might say, that sounds like a, an extreme statement. Better off never being born? Better off being dead? I believe we can only see it as extreme because we live in the Western world. Most of you probably know this. 50% of the world, over 3 billion people, live on less than $2.50 a day. Did you know that? It's hard for most people. 
One out of every four people right now live in a country where the political regime oppresses them, where they have no say in the governance of their lives. One in four. These statements, I don't think, seem so extreme to those people. Some in many of those countries say, better off I were dead, better off I were never born. Even the prophet Jeremiah, at the heart of his ministry, when he was struggling, uttered these words, Jeremiah 20, 18, why did I come out of the womb to see toil and sorrow and spend my days in shame? So first we see, I pray, Colette's theism recognizes the iniquity, the injustice, and the oppression in this fallen world, but he offers no answer. He offers no hope, and he offers no comfort. Second thing I want you to see from his theism, he recognizes that man is mortal. Look at verses 18 through 20 in chapter 3. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they are themselves but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. And so Coelet looks at the injustice, and he looks at the oppression, and he says, man, God is doing this that man might see who he really is. He is nothing more than a beast. He is an animal. He says he's like all the other creatures. Animals die, so does man. Animals lose their animation, their breath, their spirit. When they die, so does man. Animals return to the dust, so does man. And he says we may look different, we may act different, we may be more advanced in certain ways, but when you come right down to it, he says, your end is the same as every animal. He says man has no advantage over the beasts. Colette was way ahead of his time, was he not? I mean, is this not the primary argument from our evolutionary friends that you are no different from the beast? More civilized in terms of your evolutionary progression, but indeed substantially no different. You are, they believe, a grown-up germ. You are a product of matter plus energy plus time. No purpose eternally not created by God. You are an advanced evolution of your cousin, the chimpanzee, according to our evolutionary friends. In fact, so prevalent is this teaching now in our culture, in our schools, that when you go from your biology 101 to your environmental studies 101, you will not only hear your teachers tell you that you are the same as the animals, the environmentalist will tell you that you are the blight of the earth and that better off you had never been born and Mother Nature would be in a much better place. This is what many advocate even today in our public schools. It's an amazing statement because a moment of thought realizes that they condemn themselves. As soon as the environmentalist says that we are the problem, if they had any integrity in their worldview, what would they do? If they had any integrity in their worldview, they would quit their job, sell their possessions, and take their own life because they're the reason that the world is so bad. I'm not advocating they do that. Colette's wrong. And they are wrong too. So Colette, in his theism, he sees the injustice and oppression. He sees the mortality of man and the apparent insignificance of it all. Third thing he sees, he acknowledges the possibility of life after death, but he's uncertain. The possibility, look at verse 21. He says, who knows whether the spirit of man goes up 
and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. He says, who knows? Who knows? I don't know. He says, I'm a theist. I don't know. You know, maybe after we die, maybe, maybe um, it, just like the animals, we cease to breathe. We're no longer animated. We go into the grave. We become dust just as they do. Maybe our death is no different than the death of our dogs and our cats and our goldfish. Who knows, he says. He says, but God is real and God's eternal. And maybe, maybe God does something with us. Maybe God grants us some gift by bringing us into his eternal presence to reside with him forever. Maybe. Colette says, either way, we do not know. And he said, even if we did know that there was life after death, he said, there'd be no way that you could know you would enjoy life after death. And so he says, this is futile thinking. No sense in thinking about it. We'll just have to wait and see. Now, waiting and seeing is a horrible way to go through life especially when it comes to life after death. Uncertainty in general is a difficult thing, I believe, to deal with. I remember when Lori was first pregnant with my oldest son, Kurt, not having any children at all. This was the first baby to come into our life, and there was so much uncertainty. And I remember at times the anxiety of thinking, is, is the baby going to be healthy? Is my wife going to be healthy? Is it going to be a boy or is it going to be a girl? If it is a girl, will she grow up to, to love and serve Christ? Will she marry well? Will the man that she marries take care of her? Will she go to school and will she become a doctor or a teacher? All these uncertainties. And I thought, if it is a boy, what will he be like? Will he kind and gentle? Will he be swallowed up in the culture and filled with pride? Will he serve in the military? Will he become a pastor? Will he get married and have children? And as I thought about these things, I realized these are all potential possibilities for my unborn child, but I had no certainty of any of them. I could not know. Time stood before me. This is the same type of uncertainty that Coalette had about eternal life, and it vexed him deeply, so much so that it leads to his last observation about the futility of life on earth. He says life is unjust. Mortality faces us. There's no certainty of, of life after death. And then he says, lastly, this work that we have, it is burdensome. If you remember in chapter 3, his counsel to us was this. If you can't beat him, join him. Right? If you, if you got to work, enjoy your work. Look at verse 22 in Ecclesiastes 3. So I saw, Colette says, there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? He said, if there's no assurance of life after death, and we battle injustice every single day, and we know that eventually we're going to enter the grave just like our animals do, he said, then take the work that you have and, and carpe diem, seize the day, enjoy it while you can. This is your lot in life. You can't change it. So instead of fighting against it, just go with it. And it's an amazing thing. As, as certainly as he says this, to to enjoy your work, to rejoice in your work. Jump down to uh, verse 8 in chapter 4 with me. He then concludes, this too is vanity and an unhappy business. You see Colette wrestle with this. He can't get a hold on it. He says on the one hand, enjoy your work, that is your lot. And then he says, this is too is vanity and it's an unhappy business. We've got to go to work every day, day after day, week after week, year after year. And then he says some really interesting things regarding our toil he says that the motivation for most of us who work is trying to keep up with the Joneses. You know that? You know that phrase? Some of you are probably too young for that. To keep up with the Joneses was to look at your next-door neighbor and try to live the standard of living they lived. 
Look at verse 4 in chapter 4. Colette says, Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. And he says, the only reason you're working so hard, it's not for personal satisfaction. It's not for the glory of God. You work your tail off because you want to have what your neighbor has. And you say, you know what? That resonates in our culture, doesn't it? I mean, we look around and we see our neighbor driving a nicer car than we have. We see our neighbor living in a nicer house than we have. They take better vacations more often than we do. And he says, I must work harder. And so we do. And Colette says, well, that's just going to fail. That's going to be a striving after the wind, too. Why? He says, well, work, work so hard that you meet the standard of living of your neighbor. And you will realize, one, you're not satisfied. And as soon as you attain it, your eye is going to turn to the other neighbor who has more than the previous neighbor. And that will be your new goal and your new standard of living. And now you'll be rushing after that, working as hard as you can to get to them. And it never ends. So some of you might be saying, oh, well, if that's what Colette said and we know it's wrong, we, we see it, and we know it's wrong, then I won't work. I'll just be lazy. I'm just going to sit back, and I'm going to let life move along, and I'll ride with it. Colette says in verse 5 that that won't work either. Look at verse 5. Chapter 4, verse 5. He said, the fool folds his hand and eats his own flesh. It's a Hebrew proverb, and it means if you don't work, you're not going to eat. If you don't eat, you're going to starve to death. In other words, he's saying, just being lazy which is the opposite of striving and working really hard to gather possessions, is not the answer either. And so he comes up with a compromise, which is an interesting compromise. He says, work hard enough to sustain your living, but spare yourself all the toil and the countless hours and the seven days a week trying to accumulate what your neighbor has. Look at verse 6. Ecclesiastes 4, verse 6. He said, better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and striving after the wind. Proverbs 17.1 gives us a very similar teaching. Better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. He says, so you're better off working to sustain your living than chasing, chasing, chasing to have the big house and the really nice car and all the opulence that richness brings. So where, where does this leave us? High living, low living, moderate living. He says they all fail ultimately. He says even if you want to try to be a miser, no family, no friends, no children, no husband, no spouse. Look at verses 7 and 8. He said, that's not going to satisfy you either. Verse 7, again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother. Yet this is no end at all in his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? He says, even if you take that route, he says, I'm, I'm going to forsake marriage, I'm going to forsake my children, and I'm just going to work, 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 and I'm going to accumulate all the things that I want. He says, you're going to work so hard, you're not even going to stop and ask yourself, why am I working so hard? What is it all for? And so Colette, on the one hand, in verse 22, says there's nothing better than a man should rejoice in his work. And then he tells us, of all the pitfalls of working so hard, covetousness, poverty, dissatisfaction. And so he draws the same conclusion he did in chapter 3 and in chapter 2. Look at verse 8. This is his conclusion. This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Almost as he says, I'm not thinking about it anymore. Every time I think about this, I come to this same conclusion. It's vain and it leads to unhappiness. So there we are. There's the worldview of a theist. General theism, uninformed theism, 
theism that is not accompanied by the gospel of grace and the word of God leaves us where? Are you encouraged right now? I mean, did you hear these words by Colette and say, that's the life that I want to live? Of course not. There's a sense of despair and hopelessness that permeates all the verses I have read. This theism, there's no sense of justice and no hope of relief from injustice. There's no hope of mortality. There's no certainty of life after death. And there's no ultimate purpose in our labor here under the sun. And so you're left with a fearful, hopeless, uncertain, purposeless existence. You see, well, that's horrible. And I would agree. And yet, I would argue that general theism is more permeant in the church today, it's more part of the church today than biblical Christianity. I think we see many of these same tendencies within the church and within our own culture. In 2014, they took a poll and only 8% of the American culture professed atheism or agnosticism. Only 8%. That means 92% of Americans in 2014 believed in some form of God. Many of those theists professing Christ. Many of those theists identifying themselves as high as 78% saying, we are Christians. And yet, if we stand back like Colette did, and we observe the American culture, and we observe the American church, we would have to say it matches more Colette's teachings than the Word of of God. We see more theism than we do Christianity. At least I do. I look upon the American church today, and I see people overwhelmed with a sense of injustice but having no answers in Christ. I see people in the church terrified at their own mortality with no sense of hope beyond the grave. We, we hear believers talking about life after death with great uncertainty, with a lack of assurance of their faith in Christ. And we certainly hear, even in this most glorious place, much grumbling about our work. Day after day, labor, labor, why am I doing it? It's all futile. If theism is your worldview then you will draw the same conclusions as Colette. If you are a functional theist, but not a Christian, even though you go to church and you are baptized and you read your Bible, if functionally speaking you are a theist, then you will draw the same conclusions as Colette. And I would argue that your life is very, very hard because this is not what the Bible teaches us. And this is not the life that Christ came to redeem us into. So the question for us And it is a hard question. Does Christianity offer any answers to the concerns of Coalette? Does it provide us any hope of overcoming this this sense of uncertainty, this lack of assurance, the injustice that we see, the daily labor? Does it offer us any hope? Point number two, if you're not with me, click in here, will you? I just spent, I don't know, 10, 15, maybe longer, 20 minutes, all right, talking too fast, slow down telling you what Colette thought as a theist. I want to show you what the Bible teaches us. The Christian need not go through life like this. The Christian Christian need not have questions like this without answers. God has spoken. God has spoken in His Word. So we have in the Bible God's direct teachings 
on all of these matters and so much more. And so we can ask these hard questions about injustice that we see and the mortality of man. We can ask God about life after death and why we labor here. And the Bible speaks profoundly. Let's take iniquity. Let's go back to injustice. I, I think that as Christians, like Colette, we, if our eyes are open, will look upon a fallen world and say, there is so much injustice, so much iniquity. So many people being hurt still day after day. But we will not, like Coalette, become fatalistic. We will not resign ourselves to simply enjoying our work for two primary reasons. First, the Christian agrees with Coalette in verse 17. Look at it again. God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. We agree. The Bible says, we proclaim in the Apostles' Creed that Christ will come again in glory. He will judge the living and the dead and what? And his kingdom will have no end. We believe that. But unlike Coalette, we do not find this discouraging. The Christian finds it comforting and empowering. Why comforting? It's comforting. Because if you're in Christ, there's no condemnation for you. The judgment that we rightly deserved was placed upon our Savior upon the cross. And so you can have great comfort when God judges. If you're in Christ, you will not be condemned. There's also great comfort in knowing that one day all injustice, all iniquity will be made right. One day God will come and he'll make things straight. He will be the great judge whose wrath comes down and he pours it out rightly, either upon fallen man who has not repented or upon Christ himself. But either way, all injustice will be made right. I've heard, I heard people say after the O.J. Simpson trial, the man got off scot-free. No way. No one does. Whether a man or a woman is found guilty in a court of law for the crimes they've committed or not, God will judge. No crime, no sin will be left unjudged. And so we can take great comfort in that. If you've been oppressed, if you've experienced injustice in your life, don't think that God's just going to let that go by. You say, well, he didn't do anything now. I lost a lot of money, and I didn't get that money back, and that person took it from me. They'll be judged. I believe this is very empowering as well because it frees us from seeking our own vindication. Now listen, if you're like me, you have a vengeful heart. If you've been wronged, your desire is to wrong back more so. But in Christ, when we hear Coalette say that God will judge the righteous and the wicked, it should cause us to stop and say, wait a minute, God forgave me. He granted me forgiveness in his son. He did not judge me. He judged Christ instead. And therefore what? Therefore, I, I need to pray for my enemies. I need to love those who persecute me. I need to pray for their soul because they're going to stand before this thrice holy God. And unless they're in Christ, they will be judged. And so it changes our heart of vindication and vengeance to prayer and love because we look upon Christ who received our punishment in full and we know that God will come and make everything right. It also, I believe this, our, our Christianity enables us in the midst of hardship to know that we have a comforter. Look at verse 1 again in chapter 4. Colette said, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. That is a, that's a very sad verse. It's a very sad verse. When you think of all the people on this planet today 
when you think about all those who are struggling just to, just to put food on the table, all those who are living under political and religious persecution at this moment, many of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Colette says they have no comforter. The Christian says that is not true. My beloved, you have a comforter. You have the ultimate comforter. Jesus Christ said in his earthly ministry, Matthew chapter 11, he said this in speaking to the masses. He said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you comfort from your toil. He said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Listen, listen to his description. He says, I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Rest for your souls. If you are oppressed, there's rest in Christ. If you're experiencing injustice, there's rest in Christ. If you're tired and burdened and heavy laden, there's rest in Christ. He didn't just die on the cross and ascend into heaven. We're told in John 14, 26, that he sent the Holy Spirit to what? To be your comforter, to teach you and to bring to remembrance all that Christ has revealed. You have a comforter. You have rest for your soul in Christ right now. If you don't know that and you're in Christ, then you're denying the very peace that he, gives, he offers you through the Holy Spirit. Colette's counsel is, we have no peace. Rejoice in your work. This is your lot in life. Not so the Christian. Your lot goes infinitely beyond rejoicing in your work. You should rejoice in your work. We'll look at that in a minute. But if you are set free in Christ, then you should be laboring hard for those who are oppressed. You should be seeking to relieve them from the injustice that has come upon them. As children, we're told, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 7, to seek justice, to correct oppression, to bring justice to the fatherless, and plead the widow's case. How glorious that your freedom in Christ does not lead you to a path of vindication and vengeance when you receive injustice, but your freedom in Christ enables you to transcend that and go and fight for those who cannot fight for themselves that we become banners of truth and justice for those who are suffering. And that the church does. It means you'll take a stand against discrimination. You'll take a stand against racism. It means you will fight for the rights of the unborn children in the womb of our mothers. It means you'll come alongside the seniors in our midst and you will prevent them from being scammed by these con artists on the telephone of their life savings. It means you will fight for your brothers and sisters in Christ by walking with them and coming alongside of them. So we do not deny the iniquity in the world. We do not deny the injustice that we see. But we do deny Colette's response. It is much different. What about mortality? Does Christianity offer you any hope beyond this grave? We agree with Colette. Look at verse 20 again. Chapter 3, verse 20. He said, all are from the dust, and to dust all return. He's quoting Genesis chapter 3, verse 19. The man knows enough of his word. He's right. We, come, we came from the dust, and we returned to the dust. That's a product of the curse. But that is not the full story. Colette has a piece of the story. We know the full story. You are not an animal. You are not the same as the beast. The Bible says what? The Bible says you were created imago dei in the image of God. Only you, not your dog, not your cat, not your fish. Only mankind was created in the image of God. So you are not a grown-up chimpanzee. You are distinct. You are unique. 
and you were created by God in his image to rule over the earth, to subdue the creation, to be good stewards of all that God made. You were created in the image of God to enter into a life-saving, eternal relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Incredible calling. So when Colette says in verse 19, look with me, we all have the same breath and man has no advantage over the beasts. And then in verse 20 says, we all go to one place. He could not be more wrong. Animals do have breath. Animals, they are animated. We call them soulish creatures. But they do not have the same breath that you have. The Bible tells us, Genesis chapter 2, 17, that when God created man, he did this. Listen. The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, the neshama, the man, into a living creature. He only did that with man. No other animals received the eternal spirit of God. And that means that not unlike our dogs and cats and goldfish, we do not enter the grave and cease to exist. They do. I know that may be hard for some of you, but when your dog dies, your dog dies, okay? I do believe that the animals, some of those animals will be back in the new creation, so there's hope there. It may not be your dog or your cat or your goldfish, but they'll be back, some. But mankind, when God breathed the eternal life into us, made us to live forever, So just because we will one day die physically like our animals and lose animation like the animal and return to dust like the animal, you are not an animal. You're not uh, an ancestor. You're not from a chimpanzee. You're not from a primordial soup. You're not a grown-up germ. You are a magnificent creature made in the image of God. Colette was wrong. The evolutionary biologists are wrong. The environmentalists, when they say these things, they too are wrong. You were created for a glorious and great purpose, and that is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Forever. By ruling justly and graciously and lovingly over this incredible place that He made. You are to glorify Him, enjoy Him by entering into a right relationship with Him through Jesus Christ living your whole life, loving Him with all of who you are, your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength. You were created to love one another in a most intimate and radical fashion, infinitely beyond any other animal or creature. You were created to live as servants, sacrificing, serving humbly in this broken, unjust, dying world. And so as Christians... We're we're to handle injustice and see our purpose in a very different way. What about the uncertainty? You say, oh, that one really hit me. I know I'm not an animal. I know that. I, I see injustice as well, Pastor. But my assurance of faith, I struggle with that. Is there anything that Christianity, the Christian worldview, has to say about that? Look at verse 20 again. Colette said, all are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down to the earth? He says, who knows? Maybe we live forever, maybe we don't. Maybe we enter the grave and cease to exist, maybe we don't. A theist, a general theist, has no assurance of any life after death. All he can say is, there is a God, God is eternal, and then maybe I will be too. That's all they can say. No assurance of life after death. 
I think in this particular case, maybe the, the directors of Hollywood got it right. Pirates of the Caribbean, the new movie, what is it? Dead Men Tell No Tales. And that's a true statement unless what? Unless a dead man rises again. Unless the dead man comes back from the dead. And this, my beloved, is where Christianity stands alone. Now listen, if you have not been listening. Christianity stands alone from all other religions and all other worldviews in this salient, singular truth. At the center of our faith, at the heart of our belief, is a dead man who came back to life. And he didn't just come back to life to tell us a tale of life after death. He came back to life to give us life after death. Kudos to the pirates of the Caribbeans. On the cross, it was Jesus Christ who suffered the greatest iniquity known to man. The worst injustice. The greatest oppression. Without any comfort even from his father. We know that he was innocent. He was sinless in every way, and yet he was arrested. He was beaten. He was humiliated, and he was crucified on a Roman cross. And in so doing, he took the full wrath of a holy God that you and I rightly deserved. He took this upon himself that we might live. He did this did Isaiah the prophet not say that he was despised and rejected by men? A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, pierced for our transgressions, listen with all your might, crushed for our what? For our iniquities, that he was oppressed, that he was afflicted, and by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. You say, why would God ever do this? Isaiah continues, said, this was God's plan. It was God's plan. Verse 10, Isaiah 53, it was the will of the Lord to crush him as an offering for what? For our guilt, for your guilt, for my guilt. Jesus Christ did this great work. And then it says in verse 11 of Isaiah 53, to make many righteous by bearing our iniquities. We do see the, the injustice. We do see all the iniquity. We see our own mortality. We question our own salvation. And then we come back to the cross and we realize that Christ did this great work to make many righteous by bearing our sins, by taking all the injustice that we've inflicted, all the sins that we have engaged in. The great work of Jesus Christ on the cross, my beloved, is our great hope of life after death. If you have no assurance of life after death, then you don't know Jesus Christ. And if you know the work of Jesus Christ upon the cross, and he is your savior, then your assurance is certain. Our great hope in our iniquities being paid for was accomplished by Christ. Our great hope of our mortal bodies one day being raised from the dead is our hope in Christ. The apostle said in 1 John 5.13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So many Christians today still say, I just don't know. You're not a theist. You're a Christian. If you know Christ, you do know. If Christ is yours... 
if he's your greatest treasure, if he's your pearl of great price, if you would sell all that you have to have him and you have Christ, then you have eternal life. Stop thinking like Coalette. You are going to die. You are going to go back to dust, but that's not your end. If you're in Christ, you'll be raised from the dead. If you're in Christ, you'll be seated with him at the right hand of the Father. If you're with Christ, you'll come back with him in glory and you'll rule over this new earth. My beloved, Islam does not offer this hope. Hinduism, Buddhism, Mormonism has no hope like this to offer. Theism, general theism, does not offer this assurance. Only Christianity does and only Christianity can because only Christianity reveals a man who was raised from the dead and tells us this glorious tale of eternal life. And then he offers it to us freely by grace through faith. That same hope. It would not be a good story if Christ said, I rose from the dead, not good for you. It is a glorious story because Jesus Christ rose from the dead and he now says, put your faith in me, trust in me, and you too will rise. It was Christ who said, for this is the will of my Father, John 6, 40, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. That's certain. Christ said, I will. If Christ said it, it's as good as done. A lack of assurance leads to religion. A lack of assurance leads to you trying to make God pleased with you to be saved. That is a horrible life. It will be toiling. It will be vanity. And you will be chasing after the wind. The gospel of grace offers a life of absolute certainty, not in your work, but in the work of Christ. The gospel of grace offers you a life of security, not in your staying the course, but in Christ saying, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. The gospel of grace offers you a life of joy so that even in the midst of the toil and the oppression and the injustice, and you say, it's much, Pastor, you don't know, and I don't for you, but I do know this. There's joy to be had in Christ right now. And that joy right now when Christ said to us through the Apostle Paul that these light and momentary troubles are storing up for us an eternal treasure that far outweighs them all. All the injustice and all the oppression in Christ will one day lead to the glorification of God and you in Him. So Christianity, unlike theism, it offers the believer saved by grace the promise of justice one day being served. It offers us the hope of immortality, of not our end being the grave. It offers us an assurance of life after death in Christ. And I'll give you one more and I'll close. It offers you purpose in your work now under the sun. Some of you during this time are probably, you know, you're thinking he's talking too fast and he's talking too long and you start thinking about going to work tomorrow. You start thinking, oh, I don't want to go to work tomorrow. Labor, futile, day after day. Does Christianity offer you any hope in that? Being redeemed in Christ equips you to move from a day after day of futility to fruitfulness. It enables you to work and do all things to the glory of God. Coalette's counsel was this. Look at verse 22 again. He said, rejoice in your work for that is your lot. What, what horrible counsel. That is just bad counsel. Rejoice in your work, yes, but that is not your lot. 
Your lot is not to labor and labor and labor and then die like a dog. That is not your lot. Envy, slothfulness, dissatisfaction is not what has been designed and determined by God for man, nor you now in Christ. Listen, if you are in Christ, you've been born again. The old you, the old man, the old woman, you've died. And you are now to live in Christ by faith through the Holy Spirit, a radically different life. Radically different life. You've been made new. You've been given a new heart with new desires. And therefore, you know what that means? You're no longer defined by your neighbor's stuff. Right? You don't have to work really hard to have that home and that car and that job. That's not your identity. You're no longer defined by your neighbor's laziness. You say, you know that, all day, all he does is play video games. That's what I want to do. That doesn't define you anymore. You're not defined by the miser. You're not defined by the moderation. You're defined by Christ. Because if you are in Christ... That means you have what he has. You have his righteousness. You have his joy. You have the relationship that he has with the Father through him. Your definition is now radically changed on why you get up every single morning. It's not to do your lot. It's not to pay your dues. It's not to try to escape the grave. Every single day in Jesus Christ, you can get up for the distinct purpose of glorifying God and enjoying Him. What a different life that is. What a different life to make your way through each and every day for God's glory and your enjoyment in Him. You see, my beloved, when you come to a saving grace in Jesus Christ, the original purpose for which you were created in the image of God with the spirit of life to glorify Him and to enjoy Him has now been restored in your ability to do so. Before we're saved, we cannot. But in Christ, now we can. And it's not just lip service that we play as Christians. In Jesus Christ, you now can live each and every day with the distinct purpose of knowing God and loving God and being known by God and being loved by God. Having your Father rejoice in your days It means all your labor. It doesn't matter what your labor is. Husbands, wives, homemakers, tech. In the field. Whatever your labor is, you can, in Jesus Christ, do it to His glory. And we looked at this a couple weeks ago. That means you can rake your lawn. You can rake the leaves on your lawn to the glory of God. Moms, you can change your diapers in a manner that brings God glory. You can go grocery shopping and you can do the dishes and you can work on your car and you can go five days a week, week after week, to that same job and that same desk in that same office for the glory of God. These are not just things we say. This is what Christianity offers over theism. It means, my beloved, I pray that you will work hard to show a theist like Coalette or your atheist or agnostic friends, that this is not the life that we have to live, that there's a better life, there's a better hope. I pray it means that you will take to them the great gospel of grace and the salvation that you now have in Jesus Christ, that your life will be dedicated as a Christian, listen now and I will close, to the great commission, that your life will be dedicated to making disciples of all nations. 
and that means the unsaved in your midst, you will do what? You'll, you'll get to know them. You will talk to them. And maybe God will offer you an opportunity to share the gospel of grace with them. You are a Christian. Your work is making disciples. You will do that for all the unsaved in your midst. It means that if you know Christ and you know someone who's a believer but does not have a church, you will say, listen, the covenant community is called by God to be a place where you are to come and grow and worship and be nurtured. And you will bring them in. And you will teach them about covenant community and what it means to be a member of the body of Jesus Christ. You'll make disciples that way. It means that you'll look around at your brothers and sisters in the local body and you'll say, how can I bless them? How can I grow them? How can I move them one step to the right so they're more like Christ is? How can I do that? To the mature brothers and sisters in Christ, you'll come alongside and you'll encourage them. You'll say, press on toward the goal to win the prize, sister. Keep going. Keep running. You'll engage in this great work of disciple making in your families, in the homes, in the church, in the neighborhood, in the world, through our missionaries. You'll do this great work. You'll say, I, I have been, pastor, and I'm tired. I'm tired. Christ said, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Press on. If you're tired, I know, press on. If you want to throw it all in, don't, press on. Where will you go? Are you going to embrace Colette's theology? Is this the life? There is no other place to go. Hear the words of the Apostle Peter when Jesus Christ asked him, are you going to leave too? And Christ, Peter said, you have words of eternal life. Where do we go? If you tasted Christ and you know Christ, you know there's nowhere else to go. So dig in. Dig in hard. Press into the cross. Press into the gospel. Receive the power of the Holy Spirit to live this most glorious life. Christianity offers what theism cannot. Justice in the midst of our iniquity, immortality in the face of death, assurance of salvation in light of the tomb, and the purpose to live each and every day as you were created to live for the glory of God. For the glory of God. Amen? All right. Let me pray right now that God would bless us with a right Christian worldview that he would enable us to cast out all these theistic teachings that don't align itself with the word of God, that we might press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called us heavenward in Christ Jesus. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, this teaching is glorious. I would say it's beyond measure. We look upon the world that is broken. We contemplate our own mortality in the day we too will enter the grave. We're insecure about one day being served. We work day after day and we find ourselves feeling fruitless. And we ask, what's it all for? Why are we doing this? And we quickly move into the mindset of Colette. We quickly move from Christianity into theism. And we know it's destructive. I ask, Lord, you would forgive us for that. Eradicate that from our minds. Help us to see, Lord, that we're not like the animals. 
that you did in fact create us in your image, that you breathed into us the eternal spirit of life, that you made us to live forever in your presence, worshiping you and knowing you. Lord, set our feet upon that narrow path that only the gospel has, that we might be a holy people, a holy people living as a holy people, that we might go to those who are suffering injustice and iniquity in this world and we might help them, we might serve them. Let us fight for those who cannot fight for themselves. Let us work, Lord, for the justice that you so desire. And Father, when, when we find ourselves struggling with our own death, I pray you would give us peace and assurance that transcends all understanding that you would let us know again and again that we have victory over death because we have victory in Christ. And when we become unsure and we, we lack faith in our eternal destination, remind us of the cross, show us Christ, show us that he was treated in a manner that we rightly deserved so that we can be treated in a manner that he deserves. And make us fruitful, I pray. Whatever we do, whatever job we've been called to do, Whatever task you've set before us, let us be fruitful by doing all things to your glory. Father, we ask that you would bless this church with a, a manifestation of your Holy Spirit, that we as a people would magnify your glory here in this place, in the Cambrian Park community, that you would bless our efforts as we go out this afternoon to meet our neighbors and share the gospel, that you would make yourself known here Father, we ask that you would magnify your glory. You are worthy. We ask these things in Christ's name because he is worthy. It's in his name that I pray. Amen.